0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Derek King about the problem of divine hiddenness. So, we cover all sorts of topics like what is this problem? How is it related to the problem of evil? Who has advanced this worry and why? And is it really common among lay thinkers? We ask him, what is Gregory of Nyssa's concept of knowing God by participation, and how in the world is that relevant to thinking about the problem of divine hiddenness? What is the role of the church in thinking about the problem of divine hiddenness? Does group agency have anything to do with this? How is Christ present in the liturgy? How is Christ present in the sacraments? What does it mean to mirror God? I mean, it's we have an awesome discussion, and we, so we talk about much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, we try to, to explain a little bit of what that looks like because we're trying to create sort of an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So if, if you haven't listened before, uh, you may not be familiar with these. If you have, you, you know them pretty well. Um, things like cheerful confessionalism, what we mean by that is um, both a sort of we we want to confess the, the ecumenical creeds, but also for us, we want to confess certain particular Protestant uh, declarations or confessions. Uh, but when we say that, we want to do it with cheer in our hearts. Um, it's not a tool to bludgeon others over the head with. It is something that we can say, look, this is what I believe, and we can say it with a happy face, an excited face, because we think this can be useful uh, entry point into understanding uh, what what the, the doctrine of the Christian life looks like. Um, but then we want to also have things like curiosity and charity. So we want to find people who, who don't confess the same things as us, who, but who are saying, and thinking about interesting things, uh, because the Lord has really gifted uh, His whole body with all sorts of gifts, and we want to be curious about those, uh, not assume the worst, not assume even neutral things. We want to assume the best about people, uh, because that's what love does. Uh, Love believes all things, hopes all things. Uh, So we want to do that as Christians, and we try to create a culture that is conducive to those sort of things. We don't do this perfectly. We fail all the time. I fail all the time. I mean, the internet, you get on there, and it tempts you to to do the the worst possible things. I think of James 3 all the time, uh, you know, the tongue is set on fire by hell itself, and I'm like, wow, I feel that sometimes. So we're not perfect, but we, we strive to to reach this sort of goal that, the, that our Lord has set, um, and that's a little bit about us. So today I, I'm excited to introduce you all to Dr. Derek King. Uh, so we had the pleasure of meeting virtually, um, I guess, I don't know, I feel like a month or so ago, I had no idea that we each other were doing things. And then I find out all about what he's doing. And it's awesome. Because uh, part of it is cool, because he's living like where me and my wife met. And so I've got like all these special, special feelings inside for for where he's at. So I, I'm interested in to talk to him uh, from that Perspective, but also because he's done some really cool work on the problem of divine hiddenness uh, and ecclesiology. You know, there's, uh, I love analytic theology. Um, Oftentimes when people think of analytic theology, I think they think, well, it probably only talks about one or two slices of doctrine. But there's actually a lot of really cool work being done on ecclesiology. And I'm really passionate about that. So I think it's really awesome when people like this are working on problems in ecclesiology or, or, positive proposals on ecclesiology from an analytic perspective so I'm thrilled to talk with Derek about this and let him introduce some of his work and tell you why you should go get his new book that's coming out um, so before we do all that Derek give me a little bit of an introduction about you you know what what did you study where did you study what are you doing now because I know you're at this thing called the Lewis house I'd love to know a little bit about that before we get jump into the the meat of the interview
1: Thanks, Jordan. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a big fan of the London Lyceum. I've only recently discovered it, which is like an extra Christmas present this year because there's this excellent backlog of interviews that I am slowly walking through. So I guess you could say I'm going through your corpus right now, and that's been a lot of fun. I am the theologian in residence at the Lewis House, which is a Christian study center in Lexington, Kentucky, and that fancy title, "Theologian in Residence," it really just means I have kind of one foot in campus ministry world and one foot in the academic world and The Lewis House is a bit of it 's a bit unique it kind of falls into this kind of Christian study center mold, but we 're doing some things that maybe most study centers don 't do and it, I, I like to tell people it 's kind of like an intellectual campus ministry, but that 's not exactly right because It's not only intellectual, and it's not really a campus ministry. So that's really not all that helpful of a definition, I suppose, because we're not going to do a lot of the things that a normal campus ministry is going to do. We are trying to fill a particular niche and reach a particular kind of student. And we want to be a community hub of Christian thinking in the central Kentucky area and hopefully beyond. We want to create some good resources for folks as well. And we're only just getting started. We're kind of a budding campus ministry. So we've had some excellent speakers this semester so far. We've had Rebecca DeYoung, Jennifer Frey. I know she's been on your podcast uh, we had N.T. Wright recently a couple weeks ago was here with us, Peter Lighthart. We've got a good uh, group coming next semester as well. So bringing in some speakers, doing some groups, that sort of thing is is the idea. I did my PhD at the University of St. Andrews in the Lagos Institute, which is uh, you know, analytic and exegetical theology. I had a great experience there. And let's see more about me, I suppose I have uh, a wife, Bethany, and we have one son, Lewis, and my wife would want me to say that Lewis is not named after my our place of my place of employment. We had the name Lewis picked out before there was a Lewis house uh, He's named of course, after the the great writer c s Lewis of whom I'm a big fan, and Lewis was actually adopted as an embryo, which is something kind of unique Is my wife and I are big fans of embryo adoption so if any of your listeners are interested in talking more I'd love if if they reach out to me and yeah I love I love reading fiction I'm a big baseball fan especially the White Sox which is kind of random because I I grew up in western Kentucky I've lived in Kentucky my whole life except for the brief stint in Scotland so that's a little bit about me I don't know if there's any of that you want to talk more about I'm happy to.
0: Yeah, that's all fascinating. Um, embryo adoption. Just talked to Oliver O'Donovan, so that was a, a topic yeah. of discussion. Um, had no idea that you were a White Sox fan. You know, I'm a huge Cardinals fan. Uh, okay, yeah, my my
1: dad's a Cardinals area. fan, so yeah, I'm okay with that.
0: I have no animosity towards the White Sox, so <laughs> just
1: just the Cubs. <laughs> Most people don't care about the White Sox because they're they're largely irrelevant. So. <laughs> Um, cool. Well, I, I'm excited to talk about
0: all this. I, it's fascinating that your son's name is Lewis and you're at the Lewis house. All that stuff is cool. And all the speakers you guys got coming in, I mean, that's that's amazing uh, what you guys are doing there. That's really, really awesome. So I do want to talk about the book that's coming out, um, Divine Hiddenness. Give me a sort of sketch for someone who's not familiar. What is the problem of Divine Hiddenness at you know a 30,000 foot level? And then explain to me a little bit about how that's connected to things like the problem of evil, uh, and those sort of things. I think people are familiar with the problem of evil, but maybe not so much what would be termed the problem of divine hiddenness.
1: Sure. So yeah, you know, as you probably know, Jordan, when you're doing a dissertation, you have to get good at the elevator pitch. You have to. You're well practiced. People are asking you, oh, "What are you writing on? What's the book about? What not?" The way I sum it up in a sentence: the problem of divine hiddenness is the question why Why isn't God more obvious to us? Now there's some ways in which that's pretty clearly related, I think, to the problem of divi- or the problem of evil. I, I don't think the two are necessarily twins, but they may be uh, cousins of a kind of sort. Uh, they're both intellectual problems and they can be wielded as arguments against Gods ex- against God's existence usually are. but they both also have personal or even pastoral manifestations. And I think each, arguably, each provides an example of the other. You know, God's hiddenness could kind of on its own be considered an example of evil. I think likewise, evil could be considered an example of hiddenness, since the question in the face of tragedy is, where was God when this happened? Why didn't God intervene? But there still is, I think, a really important difference that we should uphold, so if the problem of evil asks why or how a, a good and loving God could allow evil, the problem of divine hiddenness asks how a good and loving God could stay silent in good times and bad. So I think two really brief examples show this distinction. So first you could suppose that someone that you love uh, tragically dies, God forbid, and then, but, but then days later, God whispers to you, look, I know this hurts, but I'm with you and I love you and I will work good out of this. Now in this case you you would still feel sort of immense pain uh, in the loss so you would still feel the problem of evil we might say but you wouldn't have the problem of divine hiddenness god's kind of clearly um, shown that he's with you in this um, so you'd have more or less evil without hiddenness and on the flip side you know we can imagine a sort of utopian world without any pain and suffering and it would seem to me, that there's still a problem here, though. If God is hidden from us, if there's if there's kind of widespread non-belief, so in this in this case, you kind of have a sort of hiddenness without evil. So, so as of the problem of evil, though, I think it's really important to hold to this distinction of kind of an experienced version we might call it and an intellectual version. So, an experienced for an example of experienced hiddenness, the stock example, I guess you could say, is, is Mother Teresa. Despite her great piety and faithfulness, she apparently struggled with God's relative absence in her life and God's silence for much of her life. And so for her, this wasn't an argument. It wasn't an argument against God's existence. It was something she deeply felt. But there is also an intellectual version. So most prominently, it's in the philosophy of religion world is advanced by a, an atheist philosopher named J.L. Schellenberg. And this is an argument against God's existence. So, in short, Schellenberg thinks that a perfectly loving God is incompatible with what he calls non resistant non belief. And I suppose the ideal form of, you know, I'll try to spare the nuance, I suppose, but the ideal form of the non resistant non believer is one who's open to the idea of God, perhaps even wants there to be a God. But simply just can't believe that God exists because of the lack of evidence. And the existence of even one such person, says Schellenberg, is is enough reason to reject the existence of a perfectly loving God who would always desire union with every person. So, as you might imagine, the arguments get a quite quite a bit more nuanced in both the the arguments as is presented against God's existence, and then also the replies to the argument. Um, but it's a problem that's that's common in a less nuanced way as well. And so, my dissertation, although it's primarily replied to this intellectual version, I wouldn't have pursued the topic if it weren't for the more pastoral implications. And you know, whether or not people call it the problem of divine hiddenness, I think, I think this is something that's both commonly felt and commonly thought.
0: Yeah, I, as I was thinking about it, I've got to imagine this is probably more common. For most people, than is the the problem of evil. At least from a sort of an existential standpoint, uh, maybe even when they explain the problem of evil, what they're really trying to get at is the problem of divine hiddenness. It seems to me, anyway.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And th- personally, this was the what got me down this rabbit trail. I don't even know if you call it a rabbit trail at this point. I suppose when you've spent th- several years on it, uh, it's it's part of your life now. But what started me on this journey was in seminary I was exposed to the problem by a philosophy professor there and it was personally troubling for me it was more troubling for whatever reason than the problem of evil and I do think that a lot of people struggle with it I, I'm I'm teasing some of this out and and I'm trying to get a more popular level book out of with some of the same ideas but um, which I didn't do in the this kind of larger academic book, but teasing out even how it relates to some of the stuff with the secular age, Charles Taylor's work, of course, and um, just some of the ways in which we default to, towards thinking, d- default towards non-belief and towards something like divine hiddenness. So, yeah, I think it's both a cultural problem and it's personally people struggle with it probably more than they re- realize even.
0: Yeah. Well, I respect anybody who's read all of Charles Taylor's Secular Age.
1: I, I didn't say that, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> I've read I've, I've read some of the the big one, and uh, I I find James K. Smith's How Not yeah. to Be Secular extremely helpful. But um, yeah, no, I've I've not I can't can't say I've conquered that uh,
0: yet. The thing is a beast, and it, I, so I've not finished it either. My friend, my co-host Brandon Askew, he's finished the whole thing, but. And he makes fun of it all the time because he's like that was the greatest labor of love I've ever experienced, and I did it hundred percent because I was meeting with coffee with you know a mentor, and he wanted to read it, so that's the only reason he was able to finish the whole thing
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we did we had a little reading group with it and made it about halfway through, and it was just it's it it was fun at times and a slog at others, but uh, yeah, definitely worth working with some yeah. some important ideas
0: so I do want to ask you a little bit about of uh, Gregory of Nyssa's concept of knowing God by participation and how that's relevant to the problem.
1: Yeah, so that might seem like it's coming out of left field for some of the listeners. So I should say at the start, my project is what I call a, theo- a theological response to this philosophical problem. So the Lagos Institute at St. Andrews was a shared conversation between philosophy, theology, and biblical studies. So if it seems like I can't stay focused on one of these disciplines, that's that's partially why. Um, so I say, I say that just to say that it kind of justifies, I think, my appeal to a, a theological and explicitly Christian tradition that's going to carry certain assumptions, for example, about the nature of God or God's relationship to the world. And and there is a worry here about sort of begging the question, and I I kind of uh, addressed that in the introduction. But one of the things that struck me about Schellenberg's argument is that he adopts more or less a wholly neutral or generic conception of God, And I I suspect he does this to make the argument as widely applicable uh, as possible, which of course I understand. And uh, indeed, I think there are several points in which Schellenberg's argument does overlap with the Christian conception, but it does also seem to me that there are some really important differences. And my project is thinking alongside, is how I like to put it, thinking alongside Gregory of Nyssa. I don't just, I'm not saying that, all of these things are how, this is how Gregory would respond to Schellenberg if he were alive, but I am using some of his thought to think about how it might apply to Schellenberg's argument. And I use some of his thought to draw out some of these differences between two different conceptions of God, specifically two different ways of coming to know God. So Schellenberg's going to focus on things like, we know God, you know, first we have this kind of propositional knowledge of God that then leads to, or might lead to personal knowledge of God but gregory is going to focus on knowing god through participation and that's what i call participatory knowledge now I, I don't mean this to suggest that um you know by because we know god through by participation that means we don't know him propositionally or personally I, in fact i think it's likely that those follow and of course participation is notoriously difficult to define and um, even just to give a clear coherent account of it so i give some hints about how i think the metaphysics might work uh, uh, the metaphysics participation in the book uh, but more importantly what it's really doing or what i'm trying to how i'm trying to use it is think about the implications for hiddenness and what it means to come to know god how that might share some how knowing god might share some significant overlap with how we know one another, how we know other people, but how there might be some fundamental differences as well. So I I don't, and I never will, participate in your goodness. I am not indwelt by your spirit. Uh, but these are some examples of what Gregory, and I think Gregory is really just a representative of a wider tradition here, but I think it's some examples of what he has in mind by participation. And so right from the start, this Christian conception of God begins to bump up against this view that Schellenberg has, this, some of Schellenberg's assumptions about God, and I'm, I'm trying to run this argument through an explicitly Christian theological lens to, to point out some of the problems.
0: Uh, so now I, I want to have you tease out a little bit of the ecclesiological dimension of this. So, what is the role of the church in the problem of divine divine hiddenness? Because I think this was obviously, in my opinion, the 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 best part of the the work you're doing here, um, and then. I'd love you to tease out a little bit what in the world group agency has to do with anything here.
1: Good, yeah. So, the, the 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 bit on participation was kind of a bridge chapter. It was to kind of set the problem and what Schellenberg is doing in more of a theological frame. And so, of course, it raises the question: if so, we know God by participation, or if I give some account of knowing God, then how do we actually know God? Because just saying we know God by participation is not super clear. It doesn't give us exactly a, a clean pathway to walk towards knowing God. Um, so one way I I wanted to tease this out, and of course, this isn't the only way we participate in God or come to know God, um, but one primary way is through our involvement in the church. And the remainder of the book really is a meditation on our involvement in the church and how it relates to this problem of hiddenness, and two scriptural themes emerge as kind of especially important for me as I I think about this issue, the image of God and the body of Christ. Both of those, of course, uh, maybe metaphors to some extent, but maybe more than metaphors as well. And it seemed to me that if we take both of these themes seriously, then it should really reorient how we think about knowing God. Uh, If we know Christ through His body, the church, then it seems logical to me that we should look there if we want to find God. So the work on group agency was a a good way to make this case that Christ is present in the church in some way, and and gave me a kind of a tangible way to think about what it means to interpret the words and actions of the church uh, as if they're those of of Jesus Christ himself. And I just found the literature on group agency really fascinating um, Joshua Cocaine. I know you've had him on the podcast. He's done some excellent work in this area. And I've got him to thank for introducing t- me to this work. But a claim like the church is the body of Christ just has a really abstract ring to it. Uh, so what does it mean for Christ to be the head of the church, for example? But group agency, I think, was a helpful way to frame that question and to have it in a reasonably clear way. So on my view, I, I, I'm trying to think through what it means for the church to be both a group and then for to think what agency might look like. And I actually distinguish myself from from Cocaine here. That I, I think that we both agree, actually, that the church doesn't quite fit neatly in any of the, I guess, existing theories outlined in some of the group agency literature. And he argues, uh, he give, he gives a kind of modified uh functional model is what he calls it. And I look at instead at, at the an, at animation theory, which is, again, we don't have to get into, into this, but this is, this is some of the literature of group agency or different models for thinking about how group agency works. And so for me, Christ and the Spirit work in the church in the technical term is psychologically mysterious social forces. So in a kind of a mysterious way, and they're responsible in no small part for the work of the church and of course there are still rogue actors and I try to talk about that that caveat a little bit in the book but so you know there are individuals in the church or really even entire church communities can depart from the agency of, of Christ. but I think we can still say that Christ in the church, uh, the spirit I mean are the primary agents of the church that are working through us to act in the world. So the challenge then becomes is how do we discern Christ's work through the church, and that's that's kind of where I had to turn turn my attention to next.
0: Yeah, no, that's helpful. Uh, I mean, I'm to, I'm totally nerd about the group theory stuff, so I'm like fascinated by it. But I, I do. It's so state... interesting, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah, it, and yeah. It's it's interesting to me because it seems like it's a an area that fits perfectly with understanding the thing about the church that really just hasn't been explored and fully fully uh, worked out. So I mean. For me anyway, reading Joshua Cockane's paper in Journal of analytic Theology, however many years ago was like the first experience I had putting these things together and for me it's been really helpful to to think in those sort of categories about the what the church is and how it, how it functions and how it how it acts as a group and those sort of things so it's it's been a really fruitful area at least in my opinion. Um, I do want to ask, though, about how is Christ present in the liturgy, uh, particularly like you know which liturgical actions are most important and why? Because uh, I think that's a pretty interesting aspect of your work as well.
1: It's yeah, it's a good question. If I'm being honest, I'm not sure I give really a satisfactory answer in the book to this to this question. One of the difficulties I found not only is the book interdisciplinary, but Any of these, like, how is Christ present in the liturgy, could be a dissertation to itself, or the question of group agency, that could be a whole dissertation. So trying to remain focused on the problem of divine hiddenness while making some of these arguments was, I found, to be quite a challenge. So the key claim that I make here. For the purposes of my argument, again, is that we actually can know Christ through the liturgy of the church. And the liturgy, I don't mean to indicate you know, kind of high church liturgy. Often churches get called kind of liturgical. Any church that Uses any sort of historical practices, you know, sermons, the reading of scripture, maybe maybe reading a creed or a communal confession of sin. Just any any sort of um, of those historical practices that get integrated into the church, which, as far as I know, is pretty much any church I've ever been to uh, would count here. On what I mean by liturgy, and and this chapter specifically, I'm looking at the. What I call the inclusive uh, features of the liturgy. So often, you know, we might include something like the sacraments, which are, uh, which usually get conceived in an exclusive way. So that means they're not for just anyone, but they're only for certain people. So, for example, in my church, we welcome all baptized believers to the table. So if you're not a baptized believer, then you don't come and receive uh, the Eucharist. Uh, as just as just a quick example. Um, so, and and usually most most churches have some uh, barriers on who can receive the sacraments or who even is is baptized, and so that but those do often get counted as part of the liturgy. But here, I'm just thinking through the what I call the inclusive features of the liturgy, which are for anyone that any any non believer could show up and participate in the liturgy of the church. So I looked a little bit at the work of Terence Cuneo and Nicholas Wolterstorff, especially, and argued that there is both a propositional and personal knowledge available to us in the liturgy. But I did want to extend that a little bit. And I thought some, again, with Gregory and the work of Sarah Coakley, especially what Gregory thought about senses and, and what it means to know God through our senses, and so with some of Coakley's work and then her building on kind of the work of Jean-Daniel Liu, thinking about the spiritual senses and how those are relevant to the liturgy, how in, the, in our participation in the gathered worship service that we're actually learning to sense with Christ or even sense as Christ senses in the liturgy. And I found Gregory's work on the senses quite interesting as well. Um, he talks a lot about seeing God. I mean there are other senses as well, like s- s- smelling even and hearing, um, but especially seeing god and this was um, this is kind of an interesting thing to say because there are th- you know no one has ever seen God right there There are Bible passages that suggest that God can't be seen or that God is typically not experienced by our senses so but Gregory does make some distinctions, some good distinctions about how to think about seeing God well. One would be something kind of like just straight-up contemplation, where the vision, of course, is more metaphorical. But he also has this way of thinking about seeing God through um, visible realities, that there's a sense in which we see God mediated through other visible things. They can communicate something of God to us. And I think, you know, this is applicable, obviously, beyond the liturgy, but I think it really the liturgy is especially on theme for me. And the historical liturgy of the church is maybe even designed, especially for this kind of mediation. I know this is a Baptist podcast. I grew up Baptist, so I've got a. You know, warm place in my heart for for Baptists, but the churches traditionally use you know a lot of the smells and bells with with icons and art, excellent music, um, uh. So they're they're designed to bring us in communion with God, and and not you know we don't have to to get into that you know I don't think I need all of that to to make the point that I want to make here, which is just that Christ is that the church's gathered worship is is a way we can actually sense Christ.
0: Yeah, and just for for all of our High Church Baptists we hear you we know you're there so <laughs> I, I would say a lot of our Baptist, there's a lot of our Baptist listeners who's like say i can have everything that negu can has in my it's Baptist true Baptist. i
1: did, i' did, i didn't mean that as a as an insult so oh, I, know I hear that you. The, yeah
0: and i i do want to make a comment here because i think what's cool about what you're doing here is you're doing all this really unique interesting work interweaving all this stuff in here asking interesting useful questions and i just want to give a plug for analytic theology because i mean to me, this is all super really relevant stuff. Yes, it, it, some of it's, you know, like learning all the nuances of group theory can be a little bit difficult, but I think it has a ton of sort of practical mileage in, in local churches to be able to be used in real life scenarios, to help answer questions, to help think through things. I think a lot of our listeners, they're, they're very familiar with things like theological retrieval, um, but the, there's a lot of questions and like what in the world is analog theology doing here is is this just some esoteric discipline that that has no real world import and I feel like things like this show you. It has a ton, and they're asking all these really cool original questions to help people think about all sorts of things related to the life of the church, about the nature of God, and about things like that. So let's zero in a little bit on the nature of the sacraments. So we talked about liturgy more broadly, generally. How in the world is Christ present in the sacraments for you? Um, Can a non-believer receive a sacrament? If so, why is that the case? So walk me through your argument here.
1: Well, if the if the liturgy chapter makes my low church friends uncomfortable, maybe this one will make the high church friends my high church friends uncomfortable. I don't know. I i i i, I, I there is a footnote in the book that I, I kind of say I'm going about this chapter with some fear and trembling, and there needs to be an enormous hedge that I'm not completely convinced about what I do here, and I realize that it kind of lands in a somewhat contentious place. Um, although I hope that it's less contentious than it initially sounds. So, the question that I'm pursuing is Is there any path for a non believer to receive the sacraments? Because I'm talking about this problem of divine hiddenness, in which we're talking about um, what Schellenberg calls the non resistant non believer. And so, if the sacraments are simply exclusive and only for believers, it, then their their relevance to the hiddenness discussion is pretty limited. And fair enough, maybe maybe they just really aren't relevant to the problem of divine hiddenness. But I did want to kind of explore, is it possible that and maybe in some cases that we might conceive of a non-believer receiving the sacraments? And so the answer I give is, is yes, kind of, but only in some super rare cases. Uh, so I, I do first talk a little bit about the sacraments, and I guess loosely defend the view that there is some sort of objective... Uh, Objectivity to the sacraments, that uh, we receive grace through the sacraments no matter what our mental state is, that it's not just up to me to conjure up um, a memory of Christ's sacrifice, but Christ is really present. And as an Anglican, I'm pretty comfortable with just kind of leaving it there and leaving it to mystery or whatnot. Uh, But the case that I'm basically imagining here is suppose that there's a non believer who for whatever reason, just simply cannot assent to the propositions listed in the apostles' Creed, um, or even really the the proposition that God exists again, for whatever reason, there's this intellectual barrier to faith, but they want to want to believe uh, or they just want to believe, you might even say they have they could even have a first order desire and to to believe in God, but simply can't check off these propositions because of these intellectual barriers they want the church to be the body of Christ and they want to be a full member of it and so forth. And they might even recognize that there's this beauty in the Christian vision. Um, So it seems to me that it's, that there would be possible for a non-believer to submit to the church and her teachings despite their non-belief. And so I use the analogy and it's only an analogy. So I recognize its limits, uh, but use the analogy of a person who marries a spouse despite Lacking feelings of attraction, so you know many uh, arranged marriages, for example, might fall into this category. So a marriage, you know, typically follows certain feelings. Um, you know, like like we might say that conversion and submission to the teaching of the church typically follow certain beliefs, but it seems to me that a marriage is still valid without them. That I don't had. I don't, I don't, I don't, It wasn't required of me to to feel certain feelings of attractions for my wife in order to to make the vows to love her for my entire life. And I can make this lifelong commitment of love even without those feelings. So what I'm imagining here is something similar that a non-believer is making a commitment to the church and her teachings despite their non-belief. And that by doing so, somehow it may be the case that the nonbeliever can be kind of caught up in the beliefs of the church and receive the sacraments with what I call a disposition of hope, which is just the hope that the, the teachings of the church, the church are true and that Jesus really has died um, for the sins of, of humanity. And so, a non-believer might, under these really specific uh, conditions, these specific circumstances, receive the sacrament. So, this is a really narrow, I think, and specific argument. It's not just kind of opening a, a baptism and uh, the Eucharist up to anyone that, that that doesn't believe for whatever reason. But I'm just working off this intuition that the church can and should welcome this this non-believer who hopes it's all true, but just simply can't assent to the propositions, and they're willing to to commit to uh to this life you know even even without that belief
0: yeah so i think most people probably when they hear and the initial statement are like whoa but then you you you
1: zero in here and and i I, to be fair i'm like that too (laughs) i feel like that as well (laughs) so
0: my follow-up question on it is if they have a i'm going to commit to the teachings of the church and i'm going to have this disposition of hope i i'm almost wondering are they even properly categorized as a non-believer at that point um, and it starts to get into the question of you know what is it that that makes you a Christian or not because I'm all there's part of me that wants to say if you have a I hope this is true I'm going to submit to the church and its teachings I want to say I kind of think you're a Christian at that point now obviously there's like all all the, the you know little questions of like well the, I feel like you have to have some sort of like embrace of some sort um, in all aspects of your, of your person. But there's also the part of me that says, well, you know, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like what Mm -hmm. kind of like statement is that? If I asked him like, explain to me where you're at intellectually, you know, psychologically, all these sort of things, would he say, well, I have problems and struggles, uh, believing this is true, but I I really want to believe I want to hope to believe. And I'm just going to present myself here and you help me along the way. And and I'm kind of like, I want to lean to say, I don't know if they're properly categorized as a non-believer. So maybe what do you think about that?
1: That's good. I, I didn't use those terms, uh, cause I wasn't, you know, I'm not trying to necessarily define who is and isn't a Christian, but I think another way of conceiving what I'm doing here is teasing out whether, yeah, someone might be properly called both a Christian and a non-believer. So we often use non-believer as just like non-Christian, for example, but I'm using it in a pretty specific and narrow sense in a Schellenbergian sense. Even the Schellenberg has, um, very much just belief and and assenting to to propositions in mind, right? So uh, certain propositions. So some people would conceive of being a Christian in that way. It means to kind of check off all the boxes of the Apostles' Creed, for example, or believe that Jesus is um, the Christ, the Son of the living God, whatever confession you might have, that's what it means to be a Christian. But yeah, I think most people recognize that there is room for significant amounts of doubt then uh, there's a quote in the book. I hope I can remember it now that I've brought it up. But uh, yeah, from a George Bernanos that I quote him of, of saying that faith is, um, what is it? 90% doubt and 10% hope or something, something to this effect. And even if he's got the numbers off or, uh, you know, if we, if we wouldn't say exactly that, I think it does point to something really important, which is that being... Christian is compatible with a significant amount of doubt. And that's really the intuition I think I was working off of and why I was trying to see whether there might be room for people who just can't, for whatever reason, um, check off the boxes of some propositions that we often associate with being a Christian.
0: Yeah, no, that's helpful. We could probably talk about that for a whole hour. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think that's a fascinating topic in question, but I also want to spend some time. Uh, you've got a chapter on what it means to mirror God. And I like that language and that terminology, and I like how you've tried to apply it. So just maybe walk me through the logic of this chapter, what you mean by mirroring God, how this fundamentally helps with the problem of divine hiddenness, those sort of things.
1: Sure. Well, I uh, will say at first... I wanted to title the book Mirrors of God, but the publisher didn't let me, so alas. Um, so yeah, I think this is like pretty important to the overall project and in some ways puts a bow on it. So it's Gregory's language. He's talking about the divine image uh, and about specifically how what it means for humans to quote unquote mirror God. And it really closely relates to his views on participation, I should say, as well because for gregory what it means to mirror god is to receive divine attributes and then sort of reflect them so when people look at me and see what a good person i am you know what you're actually seeing according to gregory is god's goodness reflected in me that's what it means for anything to be good is participating in in goodness that is not our own so you can see how this is related to the image of God language in the Old and the New Testament. And what it means to image God, at least after the fall, is I think a greater participation in God, specifically Christ. That's that's in the New Testament. Of course, the image language gets um, kind of reinterpreted, we might say, around, around Jesus. And that sort of restoration of the image in us is allows us to more and more reflect God into the world, and that we have. Uh, you might be some of your listeners might be aware of some of the the work on, especially the language in Genesis, and how there's kind of a representational and a representative image that we're both called to reflect God in some way, in, with some capacities that we have, but we also have a responsibility to act in the world as if we were ruling in God's stead or something, that there's, there's been some transference of authority. And so it seems to me this is really relevant when discussing these hiddenness concerns. At least it's a clue if we're trying to discern where to find God. Um, God's revelation project, we might say, absolutely includes humans. And, you know, here's a, here's a quick name drop, if I may. Uh, so one of my master's classes at St. Andrew's, N.T. Wright mentioned, he just kind of just, just offhandedly mentioned that uh, God is a deanthropic God. And I just latched onto that term. So deanthropic from the Greek just kind of means uh, working through people or through humans to accomplish his purposes. And that really rang true to me, thinking about especially the narrative scope of Scripture. I mean, even the incarnation itself could be considered an example of this. I'll be certainly a unique one. So if all this is true, wouldn't it be relevant to the hiddenness problem, I wondered? And if so, how is it relevant? And so, yeah, I think it's really related. Again, we don't have to get into all of the gritty nuanced, but I argued in this chapter that if you kind of grant that humans are mediators of God, then Schellenberg's hiddenness problem really runs into some serious issues. Um, So I, I will say I'm not the first one to think about the role of human mediators, But their role in the hiddenness literature is almost always what you might call mediator centric. So it's always, so these these are kind of, there are some examples of um, responsibility responses out there. So the idea is basically that God remains hidden so that these human mediators can have a certain level of responsibility so that they're kind of morally formed or whatever by this responsibility. But in my response to Schellenberg, I, I consider instead how human mediators are. Um, only just a really a means to God's end of relationship with nonbelievers, and that even by adopting Schellenberg's assumptions about God or the terms of the argument as he set them up, I think the argument is defeated uh, along those lines. So you know, again, I won't I won't bore you with the nuance, but Schellenberg has something called the not open principle, and this principle is supposed to determine whether or not someone is really open to a relationship with another person. And this is a really key idea for him in the hiddenness argument. Um, But I think the problem is that the principle really doesn't work. It can't accommodate examples um, when a lover remains concealed from a beloved for the sake of relationship. And I use an example from a Tom Hanks movie, The Terminal, which is a really fun movie. Um, But there's this example in there of... Uh, Enrique, who loves Dolores, Dolores doesn't know Enrique even exists, but he wants to be in this relationship with her, but kind of recognizes that just showing up would maybe not be the best way to go about that and forming a lasting personal relationship. And so he uses Tom Hanks's character, Victor, to kind of mediate this relationship. And I think this is a really good picture of how, honestly, how it often works. These, these ideas uh, were kind of formed in working in college ministry and seeing that most people don't come to belief in God or come to um, or come to be a part of the church by, you know, through apologetic arguments or even reading scripture and having uh, just kind of divinely revealed uh, the light bulb come on. it, It, It comes from being around other people. What C.S. Lewis called the good infection, that uh, Christ kind of spreads from person to person by infection. And I was really trying to work this idea out, and and I think it's entirely consistent then uh, for—entirely consistent with perfect love for a lover to remain concealed for a time, especially if there's a way forward that might make a lasting personal relationship more likely. And so— I think human mediation is a really good candidate for this.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's good. Uh, it's, it's funny. I, I was talking to a friend of mine last night, and he was uh, at, talking to me about a friend of his who actually just became a Christian and telling me a little bit about the story. And it was significantly because of every Christian he met was just really kind and very cheerful towards him. And over time, that opened up his heart towards, I wonder what all this stuff about Christianity is really about. Because every single Christian I've ever met is just so genuine and loving and uh, appreciative toward me. So I, I I find that to be very convincing. Obviously, not every Christian's uh, great.
1: <laughs> right. Sometimes. It can work the other way too, yeah. Don't yeah, put the but... Christian
0: stuff on your on your car when you're driving, because <laughs> I know all of you are bad drivers. Uh, <laughs> <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. I, I do want to ask here a little bit about what advice you might have for pastors uh, to help with the problem of divine hiddenness. Are there any sort of... Uh, pastoral recommendations or things to avoid, things to promote, those sort
1: of things. Good. Yeah, I I guess I can start with a quick shameless plug. So as I mentioned, you know, I wouldn't have gone down this path if it weren't for some of these personal and pastoral implications. And you don't really get into that when you're writing a dissertation. So I am I'm looking for a publisher on a kind of more popular book where I take a lot of the ideas in the hiddenness in the in the hiddenness book and expand them. And it's written for parishioners and not academics, so a much wider lens than the Routledge book, obviously. But that I hope is kind of a service to the church and is beneficial in thinking about these issues. So I really, yeah, I really appreciate this question a lot. So. Yeah, I don't know. I guess just a few things maybe come to mind. First, yeah, I recommend that pastors wrestle with the nuances of the hiddenness argument. I've found that um, some Christians, not all, whenever I give the quick elevator pitch explaining the hiddenness argument are really quick to dismiss it or think, well, that's got an obvious answer, right? And here's here's the one sentence response that, you know, they've not thought about the issue at all and yet have the the end all be all response. And in some, I, I, at least in some sense, I get that. Um, and I, I get that there maybe are are some weaknesses here and that um, even just the kind of simple faith is maybe a, a really good defeater to this argument. But I do think it's important that pastors wrestle through the nuance, not not you know the nuances necessarily of Schellenberg's argument, but just the way that people experience this problem, um, how they feel the problem, and then some of the the intellectual weight behind it. And that leads to a second thing which I would say holds really fast to this distinction between this the intellectual version and the experienced version. And I think most pastors are pretty sensitive to this, especially with the problem of evil is that somebody, someone may be feeling something here that's rather immune to any arguments about it. And some people don't need good arguments. Uh, they just need to be loved. They just need to um, to be able to voice this experience. And, of course, leading to the maybe the third thing I'd say is just consider how you and your church uh, might help show others the love of Jesus. And that's uh, that you are... His image bears uh, Christ's image bears, and your church is christ's body and that is an enormous privilege and responsibility to think about what it means for us to be Christ's agency in the world, and how do we take that really seriously so i would I think thinking through those three things as a pastor would be would be really helpful
0: awesome now remind me, are you Online anywhere. So, for our listeners who want to follow along with your resources, want to follow up with, hey, when you find a publisher for this book, I want to get a copy of it. I want to know about it. Do you do you have a Twitter? Do you have a website? Those sort of things.
1: Yeah, I don't have any social media, which I know is really bad for self promotion. I do. So, a a lot of this would come out through Lewis House or another campus ministry here that I'm involved with, Christian Student Fellowship. Um, which both have pretty large following. So I would say kind of get clued into Lewis House. And I do have a webpage that just – it's really just a bio, but lewishouse.org slash Derek-King – um, we'll just have kind of my CV there and some of the stuff I've been working on, but obviously, uh, you know, just a Google search would, would put out some of my work, both academic and I've, I've got some popular, um, essays out there. Be careful when searching for Derek King. Cause there was a 13 year old who killed his dad. Uh, and so that was, uh, in Florida. I think that might be the first Google hit. So, I, you know, always put, that's why I put the S, you know, I always wondered why academics, you know, use their initials until I started having some publications out there and and seeing what popped whenever I Googled my name. But yeah. So I would say the website, just, just Lewis house and some of the social media that we're putting out, you know, if you want to see me, I I, I interviewed N.T. Wright when he was here on campus. So, um, that's something kind of fairly recent I've got out there, but yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that's awesome. Uh, I don't have the same problem when people Google my name. Yeah, um, Stefaniak. That's nice. That's, I think yeah. there's only one of me in the world, so <laughs> I don't have to worry so Good. much about um, any negative hits there. Though, uh, the internet is can be funny because it catalogs literally everything. I'm like, man, I posted some weird things on the internet when I was a teenager. Let's hope oh, that... Oh, yeah. Major <laughs> regret. Are, yeah. You find out, oh, well, I guess... It's, now there's more hits, so everything gets buried, but there used to be times where if you Googled my name, you'd find like random like stuff like, oh, cross-country stuff because I used to run and
1: people nice. like, you ran?
0: I'm like, yeah, it doesn't look like it anymore. Uh, but there was a time <laughs> yeah. long ago that I did. Um, yeah. Well, Derek, this has been awesome. I appreciate it. Uh, are, is there a way for people to contact you if they're interested? Um I know I, I'll tell you just like when you publish the, the popular stuff and everything, just email me, obviously I'm going to tell everybody, Hey, go buy the book. Uh, but is there, if people are interested in following up, have questions, be like, Hey, help me. I've got a congregant who's working with this. Is there a way for them to get in contact with you?
1: Yeah. I'd love if people reached out. King at LewisHouse.org is my email. And you can, again, you can find that on the, the Lewis house website um, on the staff page there. So, yeah, feel free to to reach out via email, and I'd love to chat more about whatever. Very cool.
0: Well, I appreciate you doing doing this for us. Uh, I appreciate the work you put in. I mean, it's amazing all, all the hours, all all the years that our, our guests have put into thinking about all these topics in service for for the church. So uh, we really appreciate all that you're doing and, and how you're helping. Uh, grow the body of Christ with with the work you've done. So we thank you for that. And everybody has been listening, go ahead and keep up with Derek's work. It's really cool. As you can tell, he's got the right sort of disposition and heart. Um, So, you know, we have a lot of people on the podcast. Not everybody's in tune with the local church as everybody else. But I think Derek is one of those people that you say, yes, I want to support what he's doing. Um, You know, maybe we have different uh, opinions on some different aspects. But there's this common vision of what the local church should be like. Uh, the different common uh, assumptions we should confess, things like the Apostles' Creed, et cetera. And we can say, let's get on board with that, link arms, and work towards the same goal with each other. So, Derek, appreciate this. And everybody who's been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app.